so today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 15 through 21, and then I'm also going to read 24 through 27. So hear the words of Jesus. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you dressed like sheep, but inside they are vicious wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do people get bunches of grapes from thorny weeds, or do they get figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, and every rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a rotten tree can't produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruit. This is the really dangerous part. That's already bad. This gets worse now. Uh, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of God will enter. Everybody who hears these words of mine and actually puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. So uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series, and again, I don't have a great title. I, I have a lot of clunky titles. So the clunky title I have is like Empirical Christianity. Uh, but here are my goals when I, think, when I think about empirical Christianity, I think, what can we do to simplify our faith to figure out what it is that really matters, that unites us, that doesn't divide, that we can get around in the midst of not always seeing eye to eye on every issue, but we say, but we were united by something bigger, something higher. How do we simplify and cut through some of what I would call theological abstractions, academic Christianity, to get at the heart, right? So empirical just means like using our senses, using experience, using trial and error, thinking about our lives like a science experiment, right? So a bit of review. So last Sunday I mentioned, right, if you are in the sciences, uh, if you're in philosophy, if you're in history, if you're in one of these disciplines, uh, you come to conclusions by gathering information. You try to find evidence, Uh, You try to use good inductive and deductive reasoning to piece those things together to come to conclusions. Uh, If you're in the sciences, you know every conclusion is probabilistic. Uh, It might be wrong. New information, new technology could show that we thought it was X and it really wasn't, or maybe partly it was X and partly it wasn't. So there's this open-handed, humble notion of like, new information might arise that will cause us to change our minds, and that's a virtue, right? So at its best, you want to be open-minded, you want to be willing to change your mind, you want to allow new information to land. But that way of coming to conclusions, that way of building a worldview, is often at odds with a religious way of doing it. Because not always, but often when we think about faith, it's like the conclusions are already set, we know what the right beliefs are, we know what orthodoxy is, and you should accept it. It's certain It's not to be questioned. Any change means you're not faithful. Anytime you might change something, it means, oh, the devil is tempting you, right? So it's a black and white, it's a deductive conclusion set 
and uh, nothing's going to move us off that. Typically, it results in appealing to authority. So you're going to appeal to the authority of the Bible, or you're going to appeal to the authority of the Pope, or some Christian community or Christian history, and at its, not at its best, I think at its worst, faith does that, and it appeals to authority as a period. The Bible says it, period. It's a conversation stopper. It means that I win the debate, you lose. Or the book of discipline says, that's the United Methodist, right? Boom, that's it, right? Instead of using these things as an introduction to a conversation, to a dialogue, to see if any of our experience actually fits with what we're talking about, we use it often in a very sort of closed-minded, not open-ended process. And so we talked about some of the dangers. When you appeal to authority like that, it is exclusive. It shuts people down. It shuts down dissent. Often, I think it's less reliable. So if you say, well, I believe it because someone told me it was true, that's not as reliable as like, well, I've dug through and there's a lot of evidence and experience and reason behind it, right? So it's tough because what you end up with are scientific disciplines and the method they use to come to conclusions feeling like they're really at odds with a religious methodology of coming to conclusions. Like, can these be put together in the same worldview? It feels like one methodology is fundamentally different from another. I'm suggesting that maybe Christians, maybe Collister, maybe you all, us all, would do well to implement a more open-ended, open-minded, inductive approach where we let experience drive us to the core of Christianity to find those things where we might unite rather than emphasizing things where we might bicker. Like we can learn a thing or two from a kind of open-minded evidentiary approach. So I'm going to give some examples that might help. I'm going to say things you're not going to agree with. You might already disagree with me. I only want you to consider what I'm saying. I don't expect you to agree. I want, put it through the fire, test it. See, hmm, what? I don't know. Ask questions. Let's go to coffee, right? This is not a conversation stopper. This is a conversation starter. Okay. So there's a lot of anxiety. Some of you have feel deep anxiety about like people of other faiths. I know I used to feel lots of anxiety. So like, what's my moral obligation? Am I really going to allow these people to spend eternity in hell? I, I've got to say something to my LDS neighbor, right? Or my, my Buddhist colleague, right? I've got to do something to convince them to be compelling. Okay, so I want to ask a different set of questions when it comes to people of other faiths. Uh, does the person's faith and how they practice it lead to life? Does it make them better? Does it lead to love? Do they feel fulfilled? When you see them practicing their faith, do you feel like this is like the abundant life that we're pursuing? Because if it is, you don't got to say nothing. The, you'll know it by the fruit. You'll know it by the fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So your awesome, wonderful, loving LDS neighbor that really connects to God at their local stake and really is great to you as a person, and you see their growth and their love, maybe you just learn from them. Maybe figure out how to partner with them. You don't got to worry about it. But we allow theological abstraction, like, but do they have the right answers to the theological test God's going to give you at the end? And I don't think that test exists. 
Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Those who do the will of my Father, those who love, those who show grace, those who grow, those who find new life. It's all the evidence you need. And by the way, people of other faiths, when it makes them hate-filled and angry and bitter, and they force women to wear burqas or Christians who are nothing but complain and are angry at the United States and the world, that faith is not leading to life. That's a problem. The fruit doesn't look ripe to me. It looks gross. It's not the content of your beliefs. It's the fruit you produce. But do, do you see how that just makes it simple? Like just, what do your eyes tell you? What, what does your experience tell you? Does your faith lead to life? New life, growth, grace, forgiveness, redemption? Good, then you're probably on the right track. You know, I get questions about Collister. I know that's maybe a surprise, maybe it's not, right? But the United Methodist Church, pr progressive in the Northwest, how, how do you manage that at Collister, Joe? I mean, that's got to be tough. You libs over there, what are you doing? What are you teaching? And I always just want to say, just come see what's happening at Collister. Just come see. Just use your eyes. Use your experience. Because here, houses get built. Land gets used. Refugees get served. People are coming back to life. You know. Some of you experienced like just, you were dead inside when it came to faith. But you found life. I got brought back to life here. My faith was brought back to life here. I see it. I experience it. Then there's no need to worry. We're good. We're good. Use your eyes. Use your experience. Use your heart. That, that will help, right? But I, it's hard because there's so much of the abstract theology that muddies it, but is it the right answers? And I fear that too often Christians are concerned about the truth. When a Christian tells me about truth, what's the truth? You want to know the truth? I get immediately nervous. What I want is to be good. I want goodness. I want love. I want grace. Do you want to know what's true? What's true is when it's lived, you see the fruit of it. That's how you know it's true. I don't know what's true in some abstract theological world. That version of the Trinity is modalism. It's a, it's a heresy. I don't know what to make of that. All I know is when I live like Jesus asked me to live, when I actually embody service, love, grace, courage, when I confront power, when I care about the poor, the truth of that message becomes true in my life. It's undeniable to me that it's true. Not because all my beliefs are true, but because in the living, I see the fruit. Because when I live it, it becomes obvious that this is the way I should go. I'm being challenged. I'm not stagnant. Resurrection is happening in me. But if I just say that, then all of a sudden it's really easy then. It means I, I try things, I live things, I do things, and I say, that didn't work. That, didn't, that doesn't light me up. That doesn't fill my soul. But this does. I mentioned like spiritual disciplines, like it never worked for me to check something off of my to-do list because it felt like a chore. And for me, prayer and scripture had to be more like walking in nature, taking a bath, finding ways that fill my soul and that connect me to God. But I didn't know that from the beginning. I had to figure it out. And you've got to figure it out for yourself. And you don't know right now. Maybe you do. Hopefully you do, but maybe you don't. So I want to talk about this idea of using our senses, using our experience to guide our theology, to guide how we think about the church and maybe how we ought to live. And I want to talk about sin in light of it. 
You can define sin all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways, right? Sin's missing the mark. Sin is delighting in something other than God. Uh, you know, I just want to make it simple. Sin are the things in your life that lead to death, that lead to isolation, that lead to selfishness and bitterness. And it might not be over right away. It might just be over time. And it might not be the same for everybody. I mean, some things are, like murder. That's probably, that leads to death, obviously. Don't do it. But so much of life, like, is in this gray area. Like, is it okay for me to watch this movie? What about this show? Is, it, is this okay? Can I listen to this music, right? I don't know. I could watch that movie and be moved, deeply moved. I watched Breaking Bad and was deeply moved by it. Like, I thought it was amazing. Someone else could watch it and they, like, are encouraged to do meth. You probably shouldn't watch that. <laughs> I'm being serious, though, right? Like, you have to know who you are and what sort of things lead to life and what sort of things for you don't. I might be able to watch something and be fine. Someone else watches it and it causes them to lust. And you say, that's not good for you. Like, someone can watch the news and feel like, I need to make a bet the world better. Someone else can watch the news and it makes you depressed. Stop watching it. But you don't know till you do it, right? So Sullivan, he's listening to music. Some of the music he listens to has swear words in it. And he was so nervous that I would hear it, right? But we started sharing songs. So like, I started sending him Spotify suggestions and he humors me, and then he would send me. But here's what's interesting, right? The immediate part of me, the way I was raised, was like, I can't let him listen to that. Like, that's wrong. That's... But if you, any of you know Andy Grammer, that's part of what he's listening to. Um, but like, the, the message of these songs is so powerful, so positive, so beautiful, that I had to stop from scolding him and instead think, this is making him better. Like, that's different than listening to a song that is misogynistic, that is violent, that is cruel to it, right? There's a difference. This song happens to have a swear word, and it's beautiful, and it's positive, right? So, but, but this, just what kind of human is this turning Sullivan into? That's what I care about. How is this inspiring him? And it's not the same for everyone. My wife can't drink milk. She can't do it. Is it wrong to drink milk? Is it a sin to drink milk? Not for me, but for her it is. And do you want to know why? Because when she eats ice cream, she's not treating herself well. She's punishing her body because somewhere deep inside, she feels like that's what she deserves. That's why she keeps doing it. Right? So it's, it's, for her, it's not right. But for me, it's fine. We're all different. What leads to life? to grace, what challenges you, what leads to new life, what leads to resurrection, you got to treat your life a little bit like a science experiment. It's trial and error. You got to find out. You got to see. I wish it was just right on the surface, but it's not. And this is why I get a little nervous. Like the Bible will say things like, don't cut your sideburns. Like, is it a sin? Is that really, is that wrong to do that, Right? Or like the Nazarenes are like, don't dance. You can't wear jewelry. This is the denomination I'm part of and grew up in, right? But does dancing really automatically lead to sex? I mean, I guess if Nazarenes would say yes, it's just vertical sex or something. But uh, 
<laughs> that was the idea, right? And that, then the rule happens as a result. But here's the, here's the deal. You both, you and I know, some dancing is really inappropriate. Some dancing is absolutely, you shouldn't do it. I don't think that's like, can I not have my daughter in ballet? You get it, right? Like some dancing, it leads to discipline. It leads to creativity. It's exercise. It like, it's beautiful. It lights you up. It's wonderful. It's fun. You're with your friends. And some is probably gross. But your experience will tell you. You'll see how it unfolds. Some people care too much about what they look like. And jewelry and clothes and makeup is a problem. It's your idol. Just knock it off. But it can't be wrong for anyone to wear jewelry ever. Okay. What is sin? What should be avoided? Well, what's its fruit? And what's its fruit in your life? Because doing this means you get to find the dead parts, the stuff that you do that you know isn't good for you. It, it allows you to identify the parts, the things, the patterns, the habits of your life that are no good. They're not making you more the person God's asking you to be. You know it. And now you can start to get rid of them. Not because of some abstract thing you found in Leviticus, but because you see the hurt it causes and the isolation it causes, right? But you couldn't know that ahead of time. You, f you figure it out. You find out. So, this, this is where it's going to meet the road, and this is going to be an advertisement for next Sunday. Well, then what about stuff like relationships and marriage and human sexuality? Because sin brings with it telltale signs, like it isolates, it hurts, it leads to bitterness, right? Like when I lie... There are consequences of lying, like it breaks trust and it hurts other people. You can just see why we might say that shouldn't be avoided, that's sinful. Or if I embezzle money, or if I'm a shopaholic, or if I worship power, you can see how those things play out and you say, man, that does not lead to, to good stuff. Well, it's not as easy to see the telltale signs of sin when it comes to all types of marriages and relationships, right? Many, of that, many different kinds of relationships seem to lead to love and life and growth. Or like, what about when the Bible says things like, Jenny can't be a pastor because she's a woman. And the Bible says it. Is that just the truth? It's weird because all of the evidence, everything I've experienced is that she is called, gifted, equipped, and her ministries flourish. So what will you trust? I, I get it. It's controversial, right? I mean, it, is, it just is. It shouldn't be. Because bad trees can't produce good fruit. Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. See, I just used the Bible as a conversation stopper. Dang it. I just used it. I just, I'm guilty of the very thing I, I said I wouldn't do. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, I walked into that, my own trap. Um, oh, let me rephrase it. Uh, 
Jesus seems to indicate that if, <laughs> that if that was a bad tree, it wouldn't produce such wonderful fruit and that should cause us to ask more questions. That should cause us to have further dialogue, right? And so that's what we're gonna talk about next week. For now, here's the challenge. As you, as you go and you think about it, how might your life, your theology, your worldview be simplified simply by looking at the things in your life that actually fill your soul, that connect you to other people and to God, that challenge you and help you grow? And I say foster those things. That is all the evidence you need. But there are many things in your life that we might call sin, but the reason they are is clear by the fruit that those things produce in your life. Like, I'm selfish, and I'm isolated, and I'm lazy, and they, they cause me to be the worst version of myself, and what might we do to weed those things out? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that the world is structured in such a way that when we follow you, when we really live into your upside-down kingdom, when we really learn how to love selflessly, when we really learn how to pick up our cross and live as Jesus lived, the evidence of the truth of your message is so clear. It leads to love and it leads to resurrection. It leads to new life and restored relationships. When we live as Jesus lived, there's no better evidence than what we see around us then how we see it lead to inner peace. So give us enough faith and enough courage to trust in your way, to live into your way, to live into love, that we might see your fruit. Amen. Amen. Please stand for our closing song.